0: It's a privilege each morning, Lord's Day morning, to come to the Lord in prayer. And I want to make a short uh, encouragement or exhortation to each of you this morning. One of the, I recently bought a very expensive book. It's a book of the records of the elders and their meetings in Calvin's Geneva, almost half a millennia ago. And what's very interesting to me is you read that book, it's just It's the first time it's been translated into English. David Wegner had a small part in that, but it's supervised by a professor that both David and I had while at UW-Madison in the history department, uh, Robert Kingdom. And as you go through that book, the thing that strikes you is that the constant task of elders in a church is to encourage and to exhort the people who are part of the fellowship to forgive one another. And so they were constantly meeting with husbands and wives who bore resentment against each other, with parents and children, with employers and employees. And many of the names came up again and again and again. And it's such an encouragement to me to read that because then I realize that all the churches today that don't do that are simply being disobedient. But it's also an encouragement because it makes me realize that this is just a normal church. And that means that many of you, as you enter the Christmas season, need to examine your heart. Think about your loved ones particularly, the people that you live with, the people that you have as roommates, your friends, your mother's fathers, your children. uh, And you need to forgive them. You need to not hold on and nurse grudges, not be jealous, not be envious. And if you think, me? I say, yes, you. (laughs) You need to forgive the people that God has given you. Um, there's nothing that would be a greater gift to God during this Christmas season than for your homes and your telephone lines to be filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness instead of with uh, nursing your grudges and remembering the wrongs that have been done to you. And nobody's going to argue with you that you've had wrongs done to you. Uh, that's 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 part of life. We all have wrongs done to us, and some of us are more on the doing wrong to others Continuum than having wrongs done to us, but some of you are excellent at keeping track of the wrongs that have been done to you. And my encouragement to you this Christmas season is chill out, put it behind you, because if you don't, you can't celebrate Christmas. It's all a sham if you're nursing grudges and not forgiving other people. So there's a man in this church who is very generous financially. And I used to think that that was his greatest gift, but I don't anymore. What I think his greatest gift is that he has a very, very liberal and generous spirit. And his money handling just comes out of where his heart is. And so I encourage you to have a liberal, a generous spirit, all right, this Christmas season. Please open your Bibles, finally, this week, to Second Corinthians chapter 8. I want to repeat what Rob said to you earlier, which is that Mary Lee and I hope you'll come over this afternoon. Um, the house is all decorated and ready for you. And If you don't like celebrating Christmas, then come to celebrate winter. That's a nice natural thing to celebrate. It is getting to the point where I think Christians are going to begin to have just as many concerns about Christmas as many of you have about Halloween. And I share them, but I will admit I don't, I, I don't forbid my children to do certain things at Halloween that some of you think I should forbid them to do. Um, but at Christmas, uh, uh, I have not seen the development of evil as much, but maybe it was just much more evil from the very beginning. If materialism at Christmas is a bit much, we all admit that. But this afternoon, we're not going to celebrate the giving and receiving of gifts or money, but we're going to celebrate the love that the people of God have for each other. And if you have somebody who's visiting in your home, a relative or a friend, or you have a roommate that's lonely, bring them. We'll we'll be happy to have them. And everything's prepared, lots of food, lots of drinks, lots of space. So we hope you will come. Now, this morning, we are returning. For the final time to the theme of Christian giving, and I know I have been frustrated preaching on this subject during the Christmas season, but then, on the other hand, uh, what a fitting subject to study during Christmas when our Lord gives himself to us as the uh, perfect cause of our being rescued from our sin and the complete... Uh, method that God has used to allow us to enter his heaven when we go from this world to the next. And so the theme of Christian giving is actually a good theme for Christmas, and it's a theme that we will strike again this morning by reading together from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I want to go through again what I have gone through before to emphasize it, and because some of you have not been here. We are giving this theme our attention for three reasons. First of all, because our congregation is facing major tasks at this time in our life which are only going to be accomplished by all of us pulling together. You know the tasks. David Carell has come, and that means added support for the church. David and Annie and their children need to eat. Um, Second, we're going into a building program, and uh, anybody who's been a pastor's kid knows that pastors... Uh, have a very ambivalent relationship with building programs because building programs are sort of uh, soul-shaking things in churches. You have the problem of uh, the potential of fighting over the color of the foyer, or the carpet, or the or what whether to have one common one is whether to have chairs or pews. Um, so there's the possibility of fighting, but much worse than that is the certainty of Uh, everybody being stretched to the max to come up with money to build something. So many churches have a structure that people, in my last church in Wisconsin, it was people back in the 1850s that built the church. So, you know, it's a long time ago that anybody remembers having to give to actually build the church. All they had to do was just give to support the ministry of the church. Well, in the new church, you have to give to support the ministry and to support the building at the same time. So this is why it's it's difficult, and it calls for the greatest act of faithfulness on our, on our part. Uh, so there are difficult days ahead of us, but days that won't be difficult if all of us will have the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was immeasurably rich, became poor for our sake. Second, uh, all of us admit, even without the issue of, increased needs in our ministry budget and also in the need for our building program, all of us admit that uh, there's a good reason that Jesus spoke more about money than anything else. And that is that money is a place where we are tempted to be idolatrous. And if this was true in Palestine, thank you. Thank you very much. If this was true in Palestine in the time of Jesus... How much more is it true in in a country that Madison Avenue has invented? We would be fools if we claimed that um, in the United States, in the year 2002, there went out a decree that no one would be a materialist, and all the Christians said, yes, sir. Uh, No, not hardly. Uh, if I were to look into your brains in this past week, you were to look into mine, I think all of us would be horrified at how much of our time we had spent thinking about the future and money, the past and money, the present and money uh our our parents' money, our children's money, our cars, accidents, money uh, money 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 uh, in fact, that's a song I think. <laughs> You guys all know that song. I used to sing it from the pulpit. You want to hear it? (laughs) Money, 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 money. Money. See, I I knew you knew it. (laughs) Or how about the Pink Floyd song? It's kind of nasty. Instead of drums, the beat is the ring and the chang of a cash register. So, as Americans, uh, we don't stand before the bench saying innocent, Your Honor, or guilty with an explanation, Your Honor, but just guilty. We plead guilty to the accusation that we need the exhortations, the warnings, and the encouragements of Scripture about money even more than the people at the time of Christ. And then third, you all heard last week, and I'll repeat again, that uh, as is typical of churches in the final month, we need to bring in extra money for our budget. Otherwise, we will be in the red. And that amount is $20,000. But you also heard me say that Mary Lee's in my church where we grew up needs, what, $1.2 in the last six weeks of the year. So 20000 is relatively small. Now, I don't want any of you to get the idea that the teaching of Scripture about money is hypothetical. I kept saying last week that this is not a hypothetical construct. This is not speaking in vague and generalities. This is not something that is uh, sort of ephemeral, misty, cloudy, vaporous. Uh, so the teaching of Scripture is very specific and um, a few years ago I preached on the scene of Jesus sitting watching the people put their money into the money box. And if you go to Scripture, you'll find they don't have nearly the reticence in dealing with money that you and I have, and that's because you and I are idolatrous in a way that they weren't. You'll notice, for instance, Jesus sitting and watching how much goes in from different people, and when one person comes in and puts in an amount, you'll notice Jesus calling attention to the amount that she put in as opposed to other people. And boy, that goes against our grain. Can you imagine if Jesus was sitting up in the roof here with his disciples and watching you as you put into the, into the offering plate, how much? And then when one of the widows in our midst put in a bunch of money, Jesus saying, "Look, there, you saw all the other rich people putting in from their surplus. Well, what she gave is more than all the rest of them. And what we do is we see Jesus doing that, and we just think about the principle. you know the principle was that somebody that gives from their poverty is giving much more. What I want you to realize is Jesus watched how much people put in the offering plate and then he talked about how much they gave with his disciples. He called their attention to look at it. Very interesting thing. So the teaching of Scripture about money and about giving is very specific. And specifically, the teaching about the nature of a tithe is specific. And we spent our first week looking at the tithe. And I want to sum up what we saw in the Old Testament about the tithe we saw that it's always been the case that in the ancient world, it was always the case that people gave a tenth to their religion, their God. And that the Jews, as they developed this, were only doing what everybody saw as being a pious thing. It's kind of like the issue of blood and worship. It's amazing how often blood is at the center of worship. And then we look in Hebrews and it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And although it's uh, horrible to see the human sacrifice that has so often permeated societies in our in our in our world, uh, it's still very telling. Without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. Same way, money people never claim to worship God without giving him their money. And so, this is simply a development that came to the Jews as it came to the rest of the ancient world. We first have a record of it with Melchizedek, but it permeates the Old Testament. The Jewish patriarchs followed this pattern. The Old Testament law required this pattern. The Old Testament law required, we looked at the various ways that the tithe was given, and we saw that when we added the things that they were required to give... Ordinarily, it came to about 23%. Then they were to be generous in in the leftovers of their business and their crops. They weren't to pick their fields clean or their apple trees clean. They were to leave some for the poor. And then they were to also give uh, hard offerings, things that were not strictly speaking tithes, but were something that came out of their love for God and their acknowledgement that he had been faithful to them. This would be first fruits offerings when the crops first came in, when the check first came, take a little bit off the top and give it to God as an act of love. It would have been their guilt offerings and sin offerings that they took to the temple. The offerings they gave when a, when a child was born, when a firstborn son came, the, the offerings that when the temple and the tabernacle were built, they all brought their jewelry and the jewelry was melted down for the for the cost of those things. So all through their lives there were offerings that were beyond the 23%. And so what we've said is uh, to say that the tithe is 10% is true, but to say that the tithe was what was taught in the Old Testament is often not true if what you think is that the limits of the Old Testament Israelites was simply that they gave 10%. It wasn't. Uh, We don't know what it was, but clearly it was on the order of above 30%, um, depending on how pious and how much they loved the Lord. So we look at this issue in the Old Testament, we just see it permeating the Old Testament. Um, Then we looked last week at the question of whether this Old Testament habit was a habit that uh, the New Testament carried on. Um, One of the most frequent errors made in America in the last century is the error of thinking that the primary way to look at the Old Testament is to not look at it. (laughs) Because after all, that's a different God. And we have repented of that religion. Well, now, nobody says that, but that's what you all think. You all think that the God of the Old Testament was, you know, very intense and killed people. And then you forget Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) And then you forget 1 Corinthians 5 where it says that some of you that come to the Lord's table get sick and die because you come to the Lord's table without seeing what you're doing, and understanding the significance of it. Now, there's no discontinuity in God being a God of justice and judgment. Uh, He's that in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, receives the judgment of God against sin and dies at his Father's hand. Do you understand this? So, we're not dealing with a different God. God of the Old Testament is not a God that we've repented of. That's not the message of the Gospel. Uh, And it's also not the message of the Gospel that in the New Testament the Holy Spirit gives us warm, gushy feelings, whereas in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit gave them laws. Uh, Because, in fact, what the Old Testament promises about the New Covenant is that when the New Covenant comes, what will happen? We'll see this later in the sermon. What will happen is, instead of the law simply being written down on a tablet and you being reminded of it by the priest and by by the king and, and, and by the Levites in the New Testament, you'll be reminded of it real intimately. So intimately that, like, you don't hear anything except your heart. Because the Old Testament says that the New Covenant, that God will write His commands and His laws on the tablet of our hearts. Uh. You've heard the expression, somebody smells a rat. Every time I hear Christians excusing themselves in areas where they have defied God's law by talking about how, you know, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. I smell a rat. I smell someone who really doesn't have the new covenant and who has not had the work of the Holy Spirit writing the law on their hearts. Because if the law is written on your hearts, You don't talk about how God's lowered the standards in the New Covenant. (laughs) What does it mean to write something on your hearts whereas formerly it was written on stone? It means it's living. It means that it so permeates your existence that when you hear somebody explaining why that's no longer required, you think, fool. You think, this is wacko. Do Do they have the same heart I have? And as Christians, we ought to be looking at our hearts and seeing our posture towards the things that we see in the Old Testament. Now, it is true. There are some laws that Scripture clearly has uh, abrogated. There is the law, for instance, of clean and unclean. In no uncertain terms in the New Testament, it's told us that God has now declared all foods clean. And all the ceremonial laws, the temple veil was ripped in two. But now let's come to the issue of money. Wouldn't it be a wonderful religion for America in 2002, I mean, let's fantasize a little bit. Wouldn't it be a wonderful religion if in America in 2002, you were allowed to love money? Come on, be honest with me. Wouldn't wouldn't that be good? I don't think so. I think that God loves us enough to discipline our idolatry. And you know something, we're idolatrous with time. God says, take every seven days, just like I did when I created, and observe one day as belonging to me. And I'll give it back to you in the form of rest and worship. He says with our money, take a portion of that money. Take it at the beginning, not once you get done the month, and you're four weeks from the check, and you see if you have anything left over but first fruits to me. Give it to me. And you know something? He says, I'll give it back to you. And you talk to people who give liberally, generously to the Lord, and what you'll find is that their lives are well springs. You've ever been to a place? I hear we have a spring on our new property down at the goat farm. I think it was Rob who just told me that. As you go back there, there's that little concrete thing, and it's actually a spring. Well, if you've ever seen a spring, you know it's a place where pure water just bubbles up out of the ground or out of the side of a cliff, okay? This is how, this is, this is how the life of a Christian who is generous in worshiping God with their money, this is what their life looks like. There's just this, this, this bubbling that comes up, and it seems that like the widow's uh, little thing of oil. It never runs out. And funny thing, God promised this. He said, test me in this. See if this is not how your life is characterized. Uh, There's a widow in this church. I, I, I happen to know because I love her exactly how much money she has. Because I'm concerned about that. And you know what? That widow just keeps giving and giving and giving. And guess what? She hasn't reached poverty yet. And you know, funny thing, other people give to her. Would you imagine that? I mean, it just seems like one of those uh, perpetual motion machines. You know, where you give and guess what God gives to you. But he said that. He said, test me in this and see if I don't. Just pour out more than you can stand on you. So, no, there's no discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. God's interested in having our love and he said that our love is connected with our giving. He's told us that where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And he loved his people in the Old Covenant enough to command them to worship Him with their money because He knew they tended to idolatry. And so He commands us to worship Him with our money because He knows we tend towards idolatry. And it's a good discipline. And then, at the very end of the Old Testament, the very end of the last book of the Old Testament, this is where that promise comes from. It's very interesting. The Old Covenant is brought to a conclusion with an exhortation to tithe that's so intense that God refers to those who don't tithe as those who are robbing him. Why would God do that if he was going to do a new thing and namely have us uh, keep all our money for ourselves and forget any guidelines of 10% or anything like that? I mean, why would he bring the Old Testament to an end with such an intense accusation? Not just an accusation, but he then says here at the end of the Old Testament bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Second Corinthians 8 beginning with verse 1. This is just an incidental picture of the church in the time of the apostles when our word has been glorified. This is the word of God and it's eternally true. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is God's Word. Now, what are the circumstances of this text? Well, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth a letter which, among other things, he is encouraging them to grow in their grace of giving. And here at the beginning of the letter, he uses the example of another church to prod them on in this work, to use another church as an example to encourage them to growth in this area. And that other church is the church in Macedonia, specifically the churches of Philippi, of Thessalonica, and of Berea. Now, as I say those names, you can imagine, you can remember what we know about those churches. We know. The most encouraging epistle written to the churches is this epistle to the Philippians. They had some problems with division in the church, but it was a very, very sweet church. And sweetness characterizes the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians. We know a little bit about Thessalonica, that they had a tendency to be so uh, expectant about the the return of our Lord that uh, some of them were even stopping working. And so they, they, they had nothing but pie in the sky by and by. They were no earthly good. That was their tendency. And we know a wonderful thing about the Bereans. We know it was a very noble church because they took the Bible so seriously that they carried it with them. And, and, and when the preacher preached and the teacher taught, uh, they would take everything that was said and they'd open their Bibles and they'd say, is that man telling me the truth or not? And... Uh, When I say man, I mean man-man there, because they were taught only by men. And so they were noble. They wanted to know whether or not they were being lied to, whether or not what was preached from the pulpit, what was taught in the class, was in absolute conformity to the Word of God. A very dangerous thing uh, at this time, that all of you are taught constantly through everything you suck in from our culture and from your professors, I know there are exceptions, but the overwhelming mass of the stuff that you eat and drink is teaching you that uh, it would be impossible to do what the Brians did, namely to examine what anybody teaches and find out if it's conformity to the text they're teaching from. (laughs) Because after all, a text is, is only what the reader sees in the text, right? No, a text has meaning. And when we go to the Bible, there is a specific meaning that that text has by the work of the Holy Spirit. And often when you read in the New Testament, you'll see that the disciples and others are faulted by the inspired writers and faulted by God for not getting the correct text out of the meaning. Or not getting the correct meaning out of the text. And so these are these three churches. The Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans. Each of them has certain character. Now... We pull them together. They're the church of Macedonia, of that region. And we find out another thing about these churches. We find out that they're characterized by a radical spirit of generosity. They're characterized by an abundance of giving financially. Now, why? Very, very important to note this. They're not characterized by an abundance of giving because they've worked hard at it. They did work hard. But why? Did you notice as we read the text, the constant theme? Look back with me at verse 1 first. What does it say there? It says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you what? The grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So in other words, their giving was a function of God's work in their hearts. It wasn't because they'd been raised... Well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it wasn't because they were raised in the home of a generous father or mother. That may well have been how God cultivated the grace of giving in their hearts. Nevertheless, whatever was good in them was a gift of God. Don't ever get to the point where you think that coming to God in salvation is grace and then developing in sanctification is works. Merit. It's not. It's grace. Their giving as Christians was grace. And then you'll see in verse uh, 6 so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you what? This gracious work as well. So the work in the Macedonians was grace, and the work he is now working hard to get them to do, namely giving, that will be grace in their lives also. And then skip down to verse 7 the end, he says, the love we inspired in you see that you abound in this gracious work. People, we're reformed and that means we believe that we should talk more about God and his power and authority and wisdom than man's will and man's control. I know some of you would quibble that that's not quite accurate and I'm glad David Wegner isn't here this morning. (laughs) Nevertheless, we're reformed. And so we always want to talk about the agency of God. But I want you to see that always in Scripture, it is spoken in such a way that the agency of God is simply not in competition with the work of man. And if you ever get to the point where you think that because God's sovereign and powerful and omnipotent, that it doesn't matter what you do because he'll do it anyhow. You don't know what it is to think biblically. This is precisely what you see all over the place. You see He says, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Work hard because it's God working in you. You see that? This is the theme. And then you go to verse 9 and you'll see this theme again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich. So grace is all through the text. It's the work of God and then we are commanded to emulate the Macedonian church and we are commanded to work hard ourselves. And it's the grace of God. All right. So Paul, in writing this and exhorting Titus and the church in Corinth to work hard at this, Paul uses uh, a little tool that uh, many teachers, many preachers, many parents have used, many coaches. And that is, if you want to show somebody how to run a good pattern under the basket, you take your best player and you have the, the rest of the team stop and they watch him. And there's a little bit of envy, a little bit of, uh, you know, I wish I was the one being used as a model. And that's positive. It's how God works in our hearts. We watch a good example. I hope that you, all of you in this church, have singled out certain men, certain women, to watch carefully so that you will emulate them. It's all through the New Testament, this theme of emulating. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about it regularly. Says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, imitate me, he says over and over again. Well, here, Paul is telling the church in, in Corinth to emulate the church in Macedonia and to, to emulate them in showing evidence of the grace of God that is in them. Now, why were these Macedonians good? At doing the work of giving. Well, we've seen because God was working in them, because of God's grace. But there are also specific reasons. And uh, one of them is not that they had an abundance of wealth. Uh, That would make sense. In humanly speaking, we think, well, the reason a church abounds in giving financially has to be that they are an American church um, and they have an abundance of wealth and so, you know, it's just giving of their surplus. Well, that's precisely the opposite of what we're told about the church in Macedonia. If you look at verse 2, what does it tell us about them? It says, about their grace of giving, it says, "In "...in a great ordeal of affliction..." Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So in other words, they gave because of the grace of God working through affliction and poverty. They did not have an abundance of anything except poverty. Uh, The language that speaks of their poverty is similar to our expression, they were dirt poor, deeply deeply poor, Um, they were Afghanistan poor, they were Haiti poor, and they were in great affliction. Now isn't this interesting? When you do studies of the giving of Americans, do you know what you find? You find that poor people give more proportionately than rich people do. What is it about poverty that seems to spark liberality and generosity? I think there might be a parallel principle when it comes to marriage, at least with me. Uh, When I first got married, any time Mary Lee did something I didn't like, you know what would go through my mind? I would think, this is the rest of my life. And so I would try to stomp it out. Not Mary Lee, but it, whatever it was, you know, the cap in, in the in the toothpaste, you know, always just very little and insignificant things, because I'm an unreasonable man. No, not quite that bad, or worse. Um, as I got older, I began to wonder whether I was doing something wrong. So I went to my father, and I said, Dad... How do you live with some of the things about my mother that are just absolutely (laughs) mind-numbingly, shall we say, distracting? And here's what my dad said. My dad said, you know, Tim, as you get older, you'll realize that time is very short and some things just aren't worth messing around with. And although that didn't sound real spiritual, I've thought a lot about it since then and I think, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, life does go quickly, and after a while, you have to stop and ask yourself, is it really worth making a big deal about that? You know, like, for instance, the cap on the toothpaste. Um, Now, what does that have to do with giving? Well, I think rich people have spent their lives figuring out how to be rich and how to hold on to it, and have never learned that it just don't matter. Whereas poor people have spent their lives trying to get rich and haven't been successful, and so they know it just don't matter. Now, even if I'm wrong in the reason, the one thing we know is that the church in Macedonia was not all about holding on to its wealth. It was about giving from its poverty. It was about celebrating its dirt poverty by making it worse. Whatever they lacked, they lacked more of it when they got done sharing Whereas the rich people, they were doing okay. They had not yet self-immolated. They had not yet shot themselves in the foot. They had not yet liquidated their bank account. And so they were still able to hold their heads up because they had shown themselves to be wise and good stewards. They had shown themselves to be faithful providers by their, of their families. And you right away notice how Satan uses things that are good, mainly, to seduce us away from godliness. Macedonians didn't give because they had an abundance. They gave because they were poor. Because the grace of God had been at work in them, causing them to be in great affliction and great poverty, and out of the affliction and poverty, liberality came. Is that Jesus? Am I being hermeneutically incorrect to say that out of the complete poverty and humility and affliction of Christ comes the greatest treasure the world has ever seen? Do you think that a death of a king who had come born to a queen or a princess in a palace celebrated by all the mighty ones of the Roman Empire? Do you think that it would have abounded to our salvation the way the death the birth of a little child to Uh, a poor Palestinian woman. They said, well, no prophets come out of Galilee. Do you think that God would have used a rich man? Do you think he would have brought his son here to sort of allow us to see a picture of his wealth by being born to a Roman emperor so we'd have some way of understanding what he is as the king of kings and the lord of lords? Well, then God doesn't need us upstanding members of the community impressing people with our ability to provide for our own and having our children have all the best, does he? In other words, God delights in the poor of spirit and the poor of the pocketbook, and he says that their giving is more than the surplus of the rich. And the Macedonians were poor. And in fact, this image is being used to entice the Corinthians to follow the Macedonians in their poverty. We think of our poverty today, and it's a joke. Our poverty consists of not being able to go out as eat, to eat as often as our next door neighbors do. Our poverty consists of wishing that in two years we could pay off our student loans. But we're poor, and it'll take us ten. The Macedonians were dirt poor, and they gave liberally out of their dirt poverty. They didn't just give, they didn't just give generously. But look at what it says. Paul says in verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave willingly. They didn't give because somebody had their arm twisted behind their back and was giving upward pressure. They gave liberally. They gave of their own accord. And then look at verse 4. It says, Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, how how do you picture that? I had trouble thinking about this, how I was going to communicate it. I mean, I know the words are there, but how do you communicate it? You know, when have you seen people begging for the privilege of giving? I I can't picture it today. Have any of you seen it? Have an illustration? Please, can I, please, please can I give? Wait, 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 I haven't given enough yet. Stop! Don't leave! Give me a few more minutes. I can find more here. Right? It sounds like a a German mother of your roommate. You go home for Thanksgiving. You know, wait, wait, wait. We can find more in the refrigerator. You know? Some mothers are like that. You, You can't get out of the house without being filled to the gill. You know? Just pouring food into you. Well, that's the way the Macedonians were. Pleading with Paul... Pleading with other Christians who were in need. Wait, 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 we're not done yet. Nope, there's more here. Oh, no, really, we couldn't do that. You have such poverty. No, no, it's nothing. Come on. I've been in homes like that. I've been in homes where uh, the poverty was unbelievable, Eastern Kentucky, and the generosity was so sweet. And it's embarrassing when you come from the suburbs of Chicago to eastern Kentucky and you see generosity there you've never seen up in the Chicago area. Well, that's the Macedonians. They were begging them to allow them to do more. Now, why? Well, the next verse tells us. It says, They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Notice the interrelatedness between the grace of God the will of God, they're belonging to God, and they're giving. It's not accidental that it is people who belong to God who give liberally and who plead to be able to give more. You know that our Lord said that uh, where, your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But you also know that it's, it's true that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. In other words, hearts and treasures go together. And our hearts and our treasures must belong to God. But if we think that we can get our heart to belong to God by giving treasure to God, we have to be very careful because God cannot be bribed. And many people have fallen into the mistake of thinking that they can buy salvation. There are many, many people who have their names on the registers of churches and have their children dedicated or baptized and once a year show up Christmas or Easter, maybe twice, and at the end of the year send in dues. I used to get envelopes at First Pres in in, in Partyville, uh, my first church. I used to get envelopes at the end of the year that came in the mail of the church and were marked dues from people I had never met, I don't think. Now, you guys laugh, but that that shows that you've never been in a church like that. And I guess that's a blessing. But let me tell you, there are churches all over this community, at the end of the year, receive envelopes that say, dues on them. All right? This is just true. And uh, it's so sad because such people know nothing of their hearts belonging to Jesus Christ. They think of the church as a civic religion organization that you have to do your part in, and your part is... $200, $150 200 a $150 at the end of the year. They'll keep your name on the membership list. And it's somewhere to be buried from when you die. You need to get married. You can get married there. And let me tell you, our country is, is filled with that. Well, the Macedonians had their hearts belong to God. So their giving came out of the abundance of their hearts. And their hearts are characterized by this. It says what? They first gave themselves, verse 5, to the Lord. Don't ever think that you can appease God, that you can turn aside his wrath, that you can purchase his salvation by bribing him. You can't. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Your treasure is not something that buys God. It's something that loves God because your heart first loved him. And your heart first loves him because the will of God is that your heart loves him and God's grace works in you. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.21 The Macedonians had given their hearts to Jesus, and it was nothing for them to give him the small thing of their money also. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And what? And that you are not your own. Now, if your body and your essence as a person is, it, it, it does not belong to you, which of us would be foolish enough to think that our bank accounts belong to us? If I'm not my own, then certainly my wealth is not my own. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We can't give our treasure to the Lord until we've first given him our hearts. This is why the church does not ask for gifts from those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. We do not want to run the work of God by lotteries and bingo games. Do you understand that? How pathetic that uh, the church gets to the point where people are willing to speak about uh, the need to raise money from the community. I know there's sometimes things that you do that the community does support. But uh, I once was asked up in Wisconsin if I would be willing to purchase. Uh, now I got to think about this. That's not right. Now, I wasn't asked to purchase an ad. Um, I was asked if our church wanted to have our weekly bulletin printed by a man who made his living by selling ads in the bulletin to community businesses. This was how the Roman Catholic Church had their bulletin printed. It had the order of service, the worship, the announcements and everything in a weekly bulletin, and then it had ads that were sold to the businesses. So it was a profit-making thing. You'd read it in the pew and you'd go and patronize the businesses that took ads out there. And I'd never heard of such a thing although I suppose there are a lot of magazines that do that. But I didn't think in the house of God and our worship services that we should be reading ads, right? It's hard enough to see you guys reading the announcements. (laughs) So we don't want the church of Jesus Christ to be living off the money of those who deny the Messiahship of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want it to be the abundance of love, that flows up in the hearts of those who, by the will of God, have been purchased and have the work of God, the grace of God evident in their lives. Then finally, it's very interesting, if you look down at verse 7 and verse 6, he's urging Titus, an elder pastor working in their midst, he's urging him to complete, in the Corinthians, this gracious work as well. And then he says, just like the other gracious works that are, that, are, that, are, that are observable in you. And he lists them. <coughs> he says the Corinthians already abound in everything. And then he says about them <coughs> that these people abound in faith. They abound in utterance. They abound in knowledge and in earnestness and in love. So this is not a church that was lacking anything good to say about it. But this was a church that had many wonderful spiritual gifts, But now the point is, now abound in this work also. Okay, you're abounding in utterance, abounding in knowledge, abounding in love. Now abound in giving. Remember the Macedonian? Now abound in giving. And then the final reason that he gives for this is what? He says, "...for you know the grace of our Lord," verse 9, "...that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich." Giving to the Lord. Only God and his Holy Spirit can lead you to know how much to give. But the tithe is a starting point, not an ending point. Do you hear that? The tithe is a starting point. It's a starting point for you if you're poor or you're rich. It just doesn't, doesn't matter. A tenth is a good place to begin to learn the grace of giving. Second the church is the place to receive your tithe first, and it should be a monetary tithe. Some people have told me that, I remember a man telling me uh, that he uh, that his tithe was uh, the work he allowed his wife to do at the church. And this was not a man that didn't come to church and that didn't claim to be a Christian. No, the work you do at the church is not your tithe. That might be a tithe of your time, but uh, tithe is money. You heard it here first. Cash on the barrel (laughs) head. And then if you want to work, and Jeff has encouraged all of us to pick up our bulletins when we leave church, the cups you've brought in to clean the windows, you know, nobody's going to turn you down for doing work also. But you need to support the ministry of the church financially with cash, with dollar bills, and $20 bills, and checks. uh, Because this is the way that you are enticed to worship the idols of this world. And so you give your money away. Tithing ought to be starting with the tenth. It ought to be financial. It ought to go to the church first because the church is your spiritual family. And it ought to be disciplined, regular, and intentional. We see in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, concerning the collection for the saints, Paul says, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So it's timely, it's intentional, it's thought through, and it's brought to the house of God on the first day of the week. So this is what we command by the model of the New Testament church, the Old Testament church, our Lord, the first four centuries of the church, this is just the model of Christians. I'm going to end with a story and a scripture. First, the story. A preacher paid a visit to a farmer and asked him, if you had 200, would you give 100 to God? And the farmer said, yes. And the preacher said to the farmer, if you had two cows, would you give one of your cows to God? And the farmer said, yes. And the preacher said, If you had two pigs, would you give one of your pigs to God? And the farmer looked at the preacher and he said, That's not fair. You know I have two pigs. (laughs) That farmer would have come up with an infinite number of reasons and explanations why he could not start worshipping God with his money yet. Hypothetically, he was committed. Practically, he wasn't. And the minute the preacher began to focus in not just on hypothetical constructs, but actual actions, you're two pigs, the farmer didn't like it. Contrast that with our Lord. He had a perfect accounting mind, a perfect mathematical brain. He knew precisely the value of what he gave up. Not one thing that he gave up ever surprised him. And we read about him. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, it's Christmas. Who gets your first gifts? Your children? Because they'll hate you if you don't. Your wife, because you have a guilty conscience. Or God, because you love him and you want to show your life in concrete, your love in concrete ways. Let's pray.